And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jeffrey Garrett, along with... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And we want to welcome you to season two of All the Above, where we're launching a new format to bring you a leaner and meaner show. So thank you for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube, please remember to hit that subscribe button. And we want to give a special shout out to Jonathan Victor, who's always one of the first people to leave a comment each time a new video posts. And if you're listening to the podcast version, please remember to hit the follow button so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. And we thank you for tuning in. Now, we have another great episode for you today featuring this new leaner and meaner format. We want to bring you even more frequently the best content and education that you can find anywhere out there. So please come join us for the ride. For today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into some fascinating headlines in education. And then for our main segment, we, I promise you, are going to get into a segment that is the most controversial topic that everyone has an opinion about, and I mean everyone. So stay tuned. First, we're gonna jump into a segment we call The Do Now. All right, folks, now it's time for our Do Now segment, which is where we take a look at recent headlines in education. And for today's Do Now, we got a pop quiz. Jeff, you ready for this? Oh, I'm ready, I'm ready. All right, what's the first question? All right, pop quiz, Manuel. Kanye, speaking from the sunken place, said we should abolish the 13th Amendment. But what do we really need to abolish? Hmm, Mr. West, Mr. West. Um, I'm gonna say ice. Let me see, let me see if I'm right. Boom, I'm right. We need to abolish ice. Because according to a new study by the Stanford Center for Education Policy Analysis, cities where local law enforcement has had a partnership with ICE have seen a decrease in their Hispanic student attendance rate by 10%. The study shows that local ICE partnerships reduced the number of Hispanic students by nearly 10% within just two years of the partnership. And before 2012, the number was looking like 300,000 Hispanic students being displaced mostly elementary students. Yeah, this story really uh, is shocking to me, and I, I'm somewhat surprised that it's not getting more attention. Uh, we know as educators that one of the most uh, impactful things in a child's uh, educational experience, especially their early educational experience, is mobility. Right. Even in the best of scenarios, you know, with uh, very stable families that have lots of resources, moving around can set kids back. Um, add on to it the many layers that a lot of students who are, um, you know, dealing with issues of their parents or themselves being undocumented uh, that they face in life. And we're talking about students that are having some pretty adversely impactful experiences on their right. early education. Um, what's the long-term consequence of this going to be, right? Students being displaced from class in November and maybe missing a month or two of school and then showing up in another state with yeah. different standards and different, you know, assessments and all of that. There's just such a ripple effect that this can have on a young person's life. And, and um, you know, it, it stands out to me as one of the, the many ripple effects that we might not really be thinking about when we hear on the news about ICE and immigration and, and the national debate. Right, right. Yeah. And if anybody's watching this thinking like, well, good, they're not going to school. We could have more attention on legal students or whatever. Um, you're wrong because the study also shows that this did not have an effect on student 
to teacher ratios and also it didn't have effect on the number of students on free or reduced lunch. So um, these are students who aren't taxing the system and here they are not going to school out of fear of what might happen at school or on the way to school or on the way home to school. So just terrible. All right, Jeff, second question. Second question. Here we go, second question. All right, what percentage of American teens now own a smartphone? Uh, 100%. Uh, if you ask a classroom teacher uh, and you factor in the uh, Apple Watches and the uh, legacy iPod Touches, maybe 120%. <laughs> but let's, let's see. Um, apparently, I am not correct. According nope. to the new Common Sense Media Report, the actual answer is 89%. Uh, now, I would even say 89% is still a pretty shockingly yeah. high figure when you think about the cost of cell phones. Uh, I just got a new one that uh, set me back a pretty penny myself. Um, but uh, the Common Sense Media folks uh, did a survey um, of 1,000 high school students um, or secondary school students aged 13 to 17 following up on an earlier report in 2012. Now, the 2012 report showed that 41% uh, of students in that middle and high school age group had a cell phone. And today we're at 89%. So we're talking about more than doubling the percentage of students that have cell phones. Uh, anyone who's a teacher, principal, dean, heck, anyone who's even a parent has to know that this has had a radical impact on the experience of students and the adults working with those students in schools. Um, what, what do you think, Manuel? Yeah, well, it's crazy. One number that jumped out to me was that the percentage of teenagers who use social media multiple times a day went up from 34% in 2012 to 70% um, in 2018, which mm -hmm. is a dramatic increase. And something that really concerns me in those numbers is the report points out that students with low social emotional well-being, 70% um, of them, 70% of them say that social media makes them feel left out and lonely. And those same students with low social emotional well-being, 43% have deleted posts because they got too few likes on them, which is just heartbreaking. It just sounds like the worst aspect of middle school and high school magnified the just social, um, just the, the challenge of fitting in and wanting to fit in. Yeah, I think uh, what this really makes me think so much about is just the, you know, the technology around us has changed tremendously. And being a, a kid today is very different than I'm sure being a kid was for us and even for our parents. But at the end of the day, Ultimately, what kids need and want is still the same, which I would argue is connection and closeness with other people. And uh, if nothing signifies the fact that social media doesn't replace human closeness and connection, it's that stat about students deleting posts because it didn't get enough likes. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. All right, so now it's time for our third and final question. Jeff, what's our last question for today? All right, pop quiz, Manuel. Uh, get this where, one. where do tell, do trans students go during emergency lockdown drills? Hmm, emergency lockdown drills, transgender student. I would say they go where the rest of the humans go since hmm. lockdown drills are all about protecting human life and as with all other humans, transgender students need to be where the humans are best kept safe from whatever the drill is about. So I'm going to go with wherever the rest of the humans go. Let's see if I'm right. Reasonable hypothesis. And 
I'm wrong. Turns out they go on the bleachers while the adults in the room try to figure out where they should go because they have some plan to separate students by gender in the PE area during a lockdown trail. Now, some of you might have heard of this story. Um, it happened in Suffolk County, Virginia, and it turns out that their emergency response plan for a lockdown was to, in the, for students in the PE area, boys going to the boys' locker room, girls going to the girls' locker room. So when this drill happened, the teachers in that area didn't quite know what to do with the transgender girl. So they had her sit on the bleachers while they discussed it and eventually had her stand out in the hallway while the rest of the students were safe in the locker rooms. Yeah. I mean, just a uh, just a tragic story. Totally unnecessary. Um, now, to give folks a little bit of context, um, Stafford County, Virginia, the place we're talking about, is about halfway between Washington, D.C. and uh, Richmond, um, Virginia. And um, so we're talking about a, a more small town county than than suburban county. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, your initial answer just was so logical, right? We're talking right. about an active shooter scenario. We put all the kids wherever we can keep them safe. Right. Why are we trying to worry about the gender identity or the genitalia on any of the kids? Right. Like, I can't even imagine in a PE context trying to worry about sorting all the boys and girls, trans yeah. or not, to begin with, like put them all in a safe space. Isn't that the point of the drill? So there's so many uh, kind of layers of this that, that are just sort of shocking to the conscience. Um, at a recent school board meeting, there was uh, a representative who spoke for the student and the family who shared mm -hmm. this. Um, if there was someone armed in my school, I would have been the first one gone. I felt like an afterthought. If the whole thing wasn't bad enough, the embarrassment caused me to have a panic attack in front of everyone. Now, heartbreaking what do you do with that right i mean it's just right. it's just wrong yeah it's just terrible tragic story and i don't know i i mean looking at our quiz results we only got one out of three right which to me means not that we need to do better but the world needs to do better because this is uh this should not have happened and i hope this school has since uh, revisited their policies and come up with a more same policy, which is protecting humans at all costs. Yeah, the superintendent did publicly apologize and committed to revisit the district policy and even said he personally favors the Manuel approach. So yeah. uh, hopefully good news. Protect the humans, people. Yeah. All right, so that do does it for today's pop quiz do now. And now we're on to a show and tell segment. Today's episode features a show and tell, and we guaranteed you at the top of the episode that it is on a topic that you for sure have a strong opinion about. In fact, if you work in education and you don't have a strong opinion about this particular topic, we will send you one of these cool all of the above stickers. Just forward us your uh, self-addressed stamped envelope. And $99. So, yeah. 99 So well, Jeff, what'd you bring to show us today? Man, well, uh, I told you I was bringing something good, yeah. and uh, I think I did. I think I did. No way that all of our viewers don't have a strong opinion about this. So for today's show and tell, I brought in the most politically charged thing I could think of in education right now, a copy of the California Common Core State Standards. There is perhaps no term in American education more controversial than standards. Everyone's got an opinion on them, informed or not, and people feel passionately on both sides. On the standards are terrible side of the equation, opponents will say things like, standards treat kids like robotic cogs in a machine, 
or standards narrow what gets taught and they limit teacher autonomy and states' rights to create curriculum that meets the needs of their community. Or standards drive the push for standardized testing, which is expensive and is making school unbearable for millions of kids. On the standards are great side of the equation, proponents will say things like, standards are the main driver of educational equity. If we don't believe in standards, then we're basically saying it's cool if some kids can read and go to college and some can't. They'll also say standardized testing in the right dose is an invaluable part of an assessment and accountability program in our field. Lastly, shying away from accountability in our profession is about the adults protecting themselves, not doing what's right for kids. Now, I'll be honest, and for what it's worth, there is a healthy dose of truth on both sides of the equation. For example, it's undeniable that the rise of what I like to call the testing industrial complex that grew out of the Bush era No Child Left Behind legislation has pumped billions of public dollars into the coffers of just a few major publishing companies. These companies like Pearson and McGraw-Hill and others make the tests themselves, they make the review books and the materials to prepare for the tests, they make the new curriculum aligned to the tests, they conduct the training for teachers to conduct the curriculum and administer the tests, and the list goes on. They spend massive sums lobbying and donating to the very politicians who pass laws that give them our hard-earned money. It's highly suspect at best. On the other hand, people who decry standards and all standardized testing as oppressive or intrusions into the sovereign classroom are quite literally making the argument that it's not important that we be clear about what we expect kids to know and be able to do when they graduate. They're standing in opposition to the idea that schools should do everything possible to ensure every kid experiences high levels of learning. This is, no joke, pretty much a Jim Crow era perspective on schooling. Separate but equal is all good. Now hopefully you get the point of what I'm saying. Standards are controversial, and they are both valid critiques and strong arguments in favor of their existence and the assessments that they drive. So in this sea of controversy and discord, I'd like to offer a few simple truths about standards and the role they play, or at least should play, in our profession. If we want equity, we need standards. But standards alone are not enough. By having standards, we're doing what any profession must do. State clearly what the intended results are of our work and the level of proficiency we expect to achieve. By having shared, rigorous standards, we are saying that there's a bar and it's our job to help all kids reach it. But standards are hardly worth the paper they're printed on if our practice in the classroom doesn't change to help more students meet the demands of the standards. Second, standardized testing is essential, but only if we're actually using the data. In a nation of 300 million people, there's simply no way to make comparisons across populations without standardized testing. It's difficult to know whether two students in different schools in the same city know and can do the same things, let alone across the entire country. Standardized tests are the best tool we have available to know if we're getting the results we intended from our work and to give us valuable data to respond to so that we can help kids grow. Now, here's the catch, though. If we're not getting 
nor using data we have from these tools, then they're nothing more than very expensive sorting mechanisms. Critics have been right for decades that many of the tests we subject kids to wind up being poor uses of time if educators and kids don't get to understand and respond to the results of the tests. Third, 50 states with 50 different sets of standards is a bad, bad idea. Education is highly political, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The fact that we've never really had national standards, and the one time we got close, politicians in both parties undid them within a few years, is instructive. The idea that education is the province of the states sounds good, but doesn't make sense in a nation where people cross state boundaries to live and attend school all the time. Is it really fair that a kid who moves across state lines during the school year should be hampered in their learning because Texas and California can't agree on what fourth grade math should include? Now, lastly, we misuse standards all the time by attempting to teach as though authentic learning happens by standard. It doesn't. No one thinks back on their education and fondly remembers how rewarding standard RL 6.2 was. But plenty of people remember how cool it was to learn about reactions in chemistry or a great novel that they connected with. Standards are useful in naming the skills and knowledge we expect students to learn, but they're atomized descriptions of learning. They're not the end of learning in and of themselves. We focus too much on what standard is being taught at the expense of what we're actually trying to achieve. We want kids to read and write well across a wide variety of genres. That's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to create an army of people who can identify main ideas. Standards tell us if what we're asking of kids is rigorous enough and if we're hitting the right content. They're not the purpose of learning in and of themselves. So, to quickly recap, one, we need standards if we want equity. Two, standardized testing is essential, but only if we're gonna use the data. Three, 50 states with 50 different sets of standards is bad for kids. And four, standards should be used to audit the rigor of what we're teaching. They're not the end unto themselves. And that's my show and tell for today. So Manuel, uh, we just broke out the third rail uh, of politics in education. We did. We did. Uh, well, this, you did. You did. I'm just an accomplice, I suppose. Is this controversy about standards legit, or is this much ado about nothing? Um, it's definitely legit. It's incredibly legit. Um, fan of early 90s hip-hop might say, in fact, it is too legit too quick. Because <laughs> with standards come assessments. And personally, as a history teacher... Um, I don't mind standards that are skill-based standards, uh, having a standard about um, what 10th grade students should be able to do when it comes to argumentative writing and historical thinking makes sense. Um, the problem is that becomes meaningless if there's not an assessment attached to it. So teachers across the country, if, if there's standards with no assessments attached to it, then why bother with the standard? Because I'm going to you know, park it in civil war because that's like my history thing that I love and that's just what we're going to do. Um, but those assessments, that's really where I think a lot of the trouble begins. Um, there's so much emphasis on the assessments, on test scores, 
in certain schools in certain districts that that really limits the rest of the learning that goes on. So you point out that standards aren't, aren't the, the end all be all of learning, but in a lot of places they're treated that way in, in terms of the test scores. And I think you ask just about anybody who's not in an education and they, and you ask them about, you know, in deciding what school you want your child to go to, what's something you consider. And a lot of people just say, well, you know, you can Google them and see what their test scores are like, test scores, test scores, test scores. And the problem with that, one of the problems with that is that it's very difficult for us an assessment. I I haven't seen an assessment, a standardized assessment that accounts for all the different ways that students could demonstrate their learning and demonstrate what they know. Um, for example, historical thinking. So um, most standardized assessments when it comes to historical thinking, we're talking about written assessment, maybe um, short answer, maybe essay, maybe a document-based question. But a lot of students, they could demonstrate that. A lot of my students demonstrate their ability to you know, employ historical thinking through other methods, either through discussion and having a conversation with them through whatever else. A student might be hampered in their ability to write out their ideas, but they might not be hampered in their ability to think with historical uh, thinking skills employed. Um, so it's, I have not seen an assessment system that accounts for all that. So what you end up having is schools where students and teachers are pressured to adapt to this kind of test. And like you said, a lot of testing materials just so happen to be owned and developed by these testing companies. And so much money goes into it and it all be, it becomes part of strategizing for the test versus the actual learning that's that's most important. So for that reason, that's why when I hear about or when it, whenever this topic comes up, you know, standards, it makes sense. A student who has the teacher in room A64 shouldn't be given a different level or different standard of teaching than a student who's with a teacher in room C36. Like it shouldn't just be happenstance. Their educational outcomes shouldn't be just based on what teacher you have and whether or not they are teaching to these standards and this teacher doesn't follow standards and there's just nobody's in charge. However, having standards and assessments, I don't think like solves that. I think a lot more focus and emphasis could be on just equitable teaching practices and equitable resource uh, distribution to schools so that every teacher, no matter what classroom your kid winds up in, every teacher is skilled and employed in reaching your child and building your child up. Of course, that's a big ask. That's a tall task. But, you know, when it comes to standards, I just think, well, you got to test it. And when that test comes around, you know, I've, I've been in situations like every teacher where it's like, benchmark test, benchmark test, benchmark test, and it's just the pressure to perform on those. Even the most skilled teachers feel that pressure of like, man, if my numbers don't show, like what's gonna happen? And that's not how we should be entering the classroom or entering the profession. Yeah, I, so, I, you know, there's a lot of what you said that I think I agree with, but I, but I also wanna push on because mm -hmm. I, I think a very common refrain from folks is, you know, um, there's no single test that can capture all the different ways that, that students learn. Right. And I think that the obvious factual answer to that is yes, of course, there's no single test that can cap capture all of the learning that could have taken place in 180 days of school. So I'm right, right? cool, but, period. But that's not the point. That's neither the point of the assessment, nor is that the the goal and purpose of um, of having an accountability system, right? right. Like the a, a good, robust a uh, comprehensive assessment system at a school should have multiple types of assessment, right? And mm. um, and I think where we really need to be pushed as a profession is that there's some some foofy, fluffy stuff we do as assessment that actually isn't giving us real good data about whether kids are on track to right. do the type of rigorous thinking we need them to be 
able to do if they're going to be competitive applicants to college someday, right? And so, like, my impression of whether or not the kids got it today isn't sufficient when we're when we're asking that kind of question. It might be, you know, in the moment, right. uh, intuitively helpful in certain scenarios, but um, along with, you know, your your unit assessments, your research papers, your Socratic seminars, your debates, your, you know, your multiple modes of assessing kids, standardized testing has a very uh, vitally important role to play because it's the only way we can know if what, um, you know, what is passing for excellence in Mr. Mm-hmm. Rustin's class is at all comparable to what's passing for excellence in Mr. Garrett's class or someone else's class. Now, there are some contexts around the country um, the the New York Performance Standards Consortium mm-hmm. uh, comes to mind first, a, a relatively small network of schools in New York City and New York State that have a waiver from some of the state standardized testing requirements, mm-hmm. and they do performance tasks like rigorous research uh, papers right. and more extended college-like writing and, and thinking tasks with kids that, um, that I think offers a really fascinating alternative to some of the more um, you know, sit for three hours and take this on-demand assessment that that we tend to see, but there, you know, it's hard to do. It's hard to scale that with a lot of quality. Um, but either way, we're still talking about some version of of standardized assessment there right. that um, that's critical because um, every kid deserves access to a great education, right? Every kid deserves an education that's going to give them the opportunity to. Um, to have as many choices as mm. you know as possible and as they have earned um, through through their education, and uh, I think sometimes we're putting up barriers in front of kids by standards and treating them as sort of an imposition on our autonomy. Um, when I I think they actually play much more of a role that's about uh, ensuring equity and justice as an outcome mm. of our of our system of public education. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would like to believe that. I think that's a hopeful view. Um, I could think of too many instances where schools or um, teachers I know who have been at schools where it's been all about that number, just that number straight up and whatever you got to do to get that number up. Where in terms of the equitable practices, in terms of providing the students with the type of instruction that they need, um, that goes out the window because it's like, you know, drill and kill, drill and kill. Um, but, to, but you know, when it comes to Common Core State Standards, you know, I started teaching in the No Child Left Behind era. And for California teachers, that was, you know, the the CST uh, uh, exams that we took in history was like multiple choice. It was like 60 multiple choice questions or whatever. And it was essentially teaching historical trivia because like I had to get to, um, you know, the, the causes of World War One, but not just the general causes. I had to make sure I mentioned this person because two years ago there was a que- test question on this one person and if students are master about World War One, but they can't tell you, um, you know, this one person, then they're going to miss the question. It looks like, but now the Common Core State standards, of course, aren't like that. So, um, to your point of um, standards as being a, 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 a tool and a, a driver of equitable instruction in that sense, when the standards are skills-based, I'm with that 100%. So, you know, now as a history teacher, if I have a student that's predom- uh, a classroom that's uh, predominantly a particular um, population of students who, for whom this particular historical event is especially important, I could focus on that event and not feel rushed because I got to get to this other event because the test is coming up and that this other event's going to be on the test. Um, I could park it there and focus on the skills and take a deep dive Mm -hmm. into it, which I really, really appreciate. However, you know, that brings up the question of, well, then in determining the standards, like where, like, how do we make that determination between 
um, you know, skill based. Not all the standards in the Common Core State standards are, are skill based necessarily. There's also the, the the knowledge part, and you mentioned like skills and knowledge, and that knowledge part. Um, I think that's where a lot of people become fearful because it's like, who's determining what knowledge matters and what knowledge doesn't? You know, history yeah. is an easy example. Like, <laughs> you know, a student in um, in Texas, their history class should include maybe some a um, little more focus on Texas's history of independence and this and that versus a student in Washington. However, such a slippery slope when it comes to, you know, diverse populations and history as a democratic or looking at our country as a Democrat, uh, uh, um, a beacon of democracy and making sure that all populations and voices are heard. There's a lot of schools and districts that are like, nah, that's not yeah. what history's about. I'm so glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, Texas, we're picking on a little bit here, but, right. um, you know, in, in this decade, right, in mm -hmm. the 21st century, uh, the state of Texas, uh, you know, rewrote their state curriculum and state uh, history standards to essentially de-emphasize the importance of slavery to suggest that uh, slavery was not a major cause of the Civil War and that, you know, slavery maybe wasn't uh, as bad for those who were enslaved. Well, they got as, food, as, Jeff. And they did get food and free rent, I yeah, heard, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did Kanye tell you that from the from um, the Yeah, well, actually, too? it was a choice, Jeff. It if you look into it, we don't know that because we don't we don't learn it, but it looks like Texas is on the right path. So, really, we need Texas standards. Is that what you're I, saying? I guess okay. so. So, uh, case in point, right, like the um, states with radically different local politics and um, you know, and, and the ability to create standards that, frankly, are historically problematic in some right. cases, or um, in the case of science, there's a, a group of states where mm. state legislatures have been um, pa mm. either passing or attempting to pass uh, legislation protecting science teachers who challenge the state curriculum and state standards, uh, content standards, uh, around things like the theory of evolution, mm -hmm. right? And so we have uh, lawmakers creating space for folks to be able to uh, to bring intelligent design into the science yeah. classroom. So there's some real deep ethical questions that come up, especially when you get to science and history, right? right? The real controversial uh, uh, things that hit on like politics and religion, um, more so than the English and math. But yeah. um, you know, this is this that's why this is a third rail issue in in education, right? And we. Right. We went in the Obama era from having essentially a national set of Common Core standards mm -hmm. to basically now having 50 different sets of similar and perhaps right. more rigorous but different uh, state standards. And, and um, I fear that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but then, you know, as far as the, the danger of having localized standards that, you know, are just completely bonkers, then the opposite of that is true as well, though. Like we could point to... Um, no Child Left Behind and Race to the Top, both relatively bipartisan, but think about the current administration. Would you want a set of standards developed with leadership taken from, you know, the Betsy DeVos Department of Ed? You know, I, I would hope not and I think not. So there's, I could, I could see the, the state's rights argument being a problem because certain states, because of the politics or whatever, um, perhaps are going to restrict students from the, you know, scientific knowledge that has been like, you know, empirically um, proven. Um, but also on the other side of it, I don't know that you want to open the door for too much of a national effort because, you know, things aren't always going great. And, you know, that might open the door to people's worst fears of, you know, uh, totalitarian regime of like, this is a history you need to know. It's got to be this version. And if this isn't what you're teaching, then we're going to withhold funds and all this craziness. So I'm saying like, obviously two extremes on 
on either side, um, you know, we'll never get to a place probably where we have a, a, a common, shouldn't even use the term common, <laughs> um, a widespread agreement about where it's standards should look like and who should be involved in developing them. So um, I am, I am, I guess, uh, you know, in closing, perhaps mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic than you. I think we already have some examples of this, mm -hmm. right, within our national uh, curriculum and uh, a set of, in fact, some of the most rigorous academic standards that uh, are are in use and in play in, in I believe, all 50 states. So mm -hmm. that's the um, International Baccalaureate Program. That's Advanced Placement. Right. Um, the college board even exerts a lot of influence through the SAT. So I think we have some examples of this actually playing out successfully where, um, you know, a body of educators that people trust professionally right. have determined a, a, a sort of standard and a curriculum to accompany that standard that gets implemented across state lines and where there is not a feeling of like, uh, you know, oppressiveness uh, mm. to to their existence, right? But right. a feeling of like people really value getting the professional development to uh, to deepen their practice and teach IB or AP courses or that sort of thing. So I think we have some examples. I think we can get there, but mm. um, but I think you're right that um, I, I I don't know if I have rose colored glasses on, but there, <laughs> there's like a slightly pink hue. Little, uh, <laughs> to, to my, my pink glasses. hue is more of a red one. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I would say real, real quick, this is going to have to be addressed in another episode because this is going to be a whole nother, another thing. But pointing to AP sort of as like an example of, of standards that um, work well and are well regarded and well respected. I think they are well regarded and well respected and work well in instances. But um, I for sure wouldn't want to see AP style teaching and learning as like sort of the model of teaching and learning because a lot of that is, of course, geared towards the test and a student in AP U.S. history or AP world history is approaching history differently than, um, you know, classes outside of that. And I don't know that their approach to it is necessarily better. So, but that's a whole yeah. other topic. Yeah, the agree. AP episode Agreed. is going to have to happen. The college Agreed. board episode <laughs> will have to happen at some yeah. point. Yeah. All right. All right, folks. So um, that about does it for our show and tell this week. Please chime in. We know you have a strong opinion about this. You had a strong opinion going in. I doubt that either of you, either of us, I should say, have helped change your opinion. So leave some comments either on our Facebook or on our YouTube and uh, let us know what you think about this debate and discussion about standards and assessments. All right, folks, that just about does it for this episode. But now it's time for class dismissed. And we want to leave you with a few shout outs. First of all, we want to shout out our crew. You can't see them because they're behind the camera. But we have a crew of teenagers led by award winning film and CTE teacher William Abanyi. And they're taking care of all the technical needs and the sound and lighting and all that. So shout out to you guys. You guys are doing awesome. And we also want to shout out uh, elementary school teacher, third grade teacher, her name was Liz Kleinrock, and she teaches in Los Angeles. And recently she posted an image to Instagram, and if you're watching this on YouTube, you're looking at the image right now, and basically it's a chart that she created to teach her third graders about consent. All right, the, the chart goes over the basics about what consent is, how to ask for consent, and what to do when consent is denied. And of course, this being the era of Me Too and the Me Too movement and this clear, glaring like debate about what consent means in, in, in um, the Kavanaugh hearings and all that stuff, she took it upon herself to teach her youngsters 
early on what consent is and how to ask for it and what to do when it's denied. Really fundamental basic principles that we should all know. And some people targeted her online saying that's inappropriate for third graders, but she was teaching about consent in general, not about sexual consent. Consent goes way above and beyond sexual relations. So quit it guys. Um, Klein Rock, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Keep it up. Maybe if we have more Klein Rocks, we'll have fewer Kavanaugh's. Oh, I like that. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, so, folks, we've come to the end of our first episode of season two, and we hope that you loved our leaner and meaner format as much as we did. Um, we want to hear from you, so make sure you leave your thoughts and comments. You can always find us uh, on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash AOTA show. Uh, make sure you leave your thoughts. You can also find all of our content on our website. That's AOTA show. Com. Once again, AOTAShow.com. Come check us out. Uh, weigh in on the conversation. Um, we'd love to hear from you about topics to explore. So let us know what you're thinking, and we will see you next time on All the Above.